Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a spooky apple orchard here <laughs> in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nyberg. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today is Norm Wilner. He is a senior film writer for Now Magazine and the host of Someone Else's Movie, a uh, podcast on the Frequency Network, and a great booster of our podcast. We thank you so much for coming, Norm. Thank you. This is fun. Long time listener, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Norm. I, I have to say also that um, I mean, as I'm sure Kenny doesn't know, but now magazine is a is a is a publication in Toronto. It's it's sort of like a, a what LA Weekly was like when LA Weekly existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been uh, I've been reading Norm's reviews for a very long time. So uh, that's I'm I just weird. Phil's <laughs> well, kind of a weird guy. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, I still read them, by the way. Um, not not quite as weird as your uh, your movie pick here. <laughs> well, this was one of those things where I, I mean, I, I believe when the pitch was first brought to me, I said Galaxy Quest, and then you guys said, "No, we have someone for that." So uh, from the from the the bucket that I was handed of options, this is the one that just I'd forgotten it was 1999. For some reason, I thought it was like early 2000s and it just didn't even occur to me so it's like yeah i remember that it's it's a whole bunch of talented people that i actually really like and so sure i'll revisit it and i did that (laughs) (laughs) you know i have to say um so my history if that's even the right word with this movie is basically the movie is in dreams i don't know if we said that the movie is in dreams. the movie is in dreams um it is a, a neil jordan bruce robinson movie um which so i 
Jan, uh, obviously past and future guest, you know, does our theme song, does our key art. He's obviously he's one of my best friends back in Toronto. Uh, is a huge With Nail and I fan. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen With Nail and I, Kenny, um, but it's a great movie. I, I don't know what yeah. your thoughts are on on it, Norm. Oh, I I love it. I actually I. I uh, I guess it's I guess it's relevant. I've been a working <laughs> film critic for like thirty odd years, and I don't collect autographs because that's weird, skeezy. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, it's, I was on the Watchmen junket, and someone brought along the absolute Watchmen and had literally everyone sign. It's like you're just going to put this on eBay. I don't respect that. No, but, um, fair point. A handful of of people who've who've been important enough to me added a point when I was still young enough that I was willing to kind of go to that point and say, can you please sign this thing? Uh, and I got my with Mill and I script signed by Bruce Robinson. That's, that's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. That's, cool. that's how, that's how important a figure he is and how much I love that movie. It's so it's even stranger that he co-writes this movie. I mean, which could not be farther from with Nail and I, he has very yeah. few credits to speak of. He also wrote the killing field. Sure. I'm uh, not, the, not that this is anything the, close. Yeah, Jennifer eight. He considers, yeah. I, I read a little bit about this. He basically considers, um, Jennifer Eight, like the biggest failure of his career until, until this. this. <laughs> <laughs> Not that he did anything wrong. I think yeah. he thinks the ball scripts are pretty good, but um, yeah. But uh, I think that that he thought Jennifer Hate was just a disaster on the screen, and that this was even worse. Well, his quote, uh, which I'll read, says. It was a complete and utter mess from top to bottom. I thought Jennifer Eight was a low point, but Christ Almighty, this hit the floor and dug. Yeah, poor guy. He really hates you know it. What? I'll say this though. Um, so I go and see this movie because my friend Yon loves With Nail and I. And he's like, it's Bruce Robinson's new movie. I was like, okay. And it comes out in Jan- January 15th, 1999. So as we all know, you know, well, not back then anyway. This was I just a- saw Underwater this week. I totally know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's generally – those first couple weeks of January are not usually when films that they expect much from are released. Um, and this movie – understandably, if I worked at DreamWorks and saw this movie, I probably would think like this isn't – this isn't going to hit. Um, but we went to see it and I remember just feeling like this movie, I just didn't care one way or the other about it. It didn't really leave much of an impression, but I have to say that watching it today, I liked it more than I thought I was going to. Um, there was stuff in it that worked for me. Most of it on a production level, not, you know, most of it not being from the script, but Mm. it's, it's, I don't know. I think it's a mess. I'm not, I'm not going to ride for this movie necessarily, Kenny. Uh, but I do think that there's there are redeeming qualities about this film. I think it's a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> I could I could elaborate why I think it's a bad you movie. Will. Uh, I will. We have a long <laughs> podcast ahead of us, three to four hours on in dreams. But um, I just um, yeah, no, I thought it was a bad movie. I think there's uh, there there are two kind of major fundamental flaws sure. in this movie. One um, <laughs> one is uh, now nah, I say this as a parent, but I think this is a universal thing. Ned Benning's daughter dies in the first act and um, I had a hard time understanding what she was living for after that. Now, I'm not saying there's no reason to live once your child dies. Mm-hmm. You see plenty of movies where a child dies and mm-hmm. the character goes on. But you do need – you, you do generally need to pivot and I don't think they ever did. I would I would um, agree with you that, that the um, – yes to everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that uh, – the fundamental flaw you're speaking of really is in her arc. Well, I'm going to, I yeah. think maybe that may, yeah. the second fundamental flaw I have, which is maybe connected to the first is, um, she's a very reactive character to say the least. And, uh, with very little to no agency. And I frankly don't know what she wanted. 
Yeah, I, that was that was literally what I was going to get to mm. was that I, I I do feel like I was confounded by what her goals were or her mission was. But I also just I want to read a quote here from um, from uh, Neil Jordan, the the uh, co-writer and director of the film. Mm-hmm. No um, slouch. No slouch. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of movies that aren't great, a lot of movies yeah. that are great. Uh, he said, so Injuries was adapted from the novel Doll's Eye by Barry Wood, uh, by writer-director Neil Jordan and screenwriter Bruce Robinson. Commenting on the film's overarching theme, Jordan stated, I don't think the world behaves in a rational manner, but we all write about it and talk about it as if it does. I think that's what a lot of stories I've told I've been about. How people try and make sense of their own lives with the tools and av- uh, with the tools available like logic and sense of consequence. And these forces erupt into lives that make no sense. I guess... This felt to me, and I'm obviously very curious as to your thoughts on this, Norm, it, it in its own weird way felt like a tone poem to me. Like it almost felt like it was at odds with itself in the sense that if they could have had less story, there's just there's like too much and too little story going on. It's like there's two sort of these opposing forces going on within the movie. Yeah, I think its strengths are in its sensationalism, right? I mean, it's when it goes over the top is when it's most interesting and compelling. That the idea of the dream logic driving the story, I think, is yeah. supposed to compensate in a lot of ways for the holes in the narrative <laughs> mm-hmm. and the fact that, yeah, um, I mean, Kenny's right. It she doesn't make sense as a character. We don't really get to understand why she recovers from the first act, and then the decisions in the second and third act are only there because the story is already headed in that. Right. In that predetermined place, right? So by the time it gets there, it's a way of sort of making everything right in one way while completely overcomplicating it in the other. And I think I, I'm fascinated by Annette Benning's performance because she seems to know where she's going and what she's doing. Yeah. She she as an actor has a confidence that comes through the confusion of this this poor woman who is I mean, have we even really started to get into the story yet? She is unwittingly psychically linked to uh, Robert werewolf Robert Downey Jr. Um, but the eyes, it's right? a nightmare like, no matter what. Those contact lenses. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and all of that baggage that comes with, she's having visions, she's having horrific dreams, obviously, and, and some sort of disconnection in her own life mm-hmm. that is pushing her to be receptive to him or to, to the, whatever it is he's sending, which is never explained and never really, nope. other than the, the mythology of this sunken city, the, this drowned city, which is, I think, the beautiful image that uh-huh. hooked Neil Jordan. Have mm-hmm. you guys seen A Company of Wolves? I have. I, have I was actually going to bring that up because it does feel like, you know, he does The Company of Wolves. He does Interview with the Vampire. Like, it's it's not as though Neil Jordan is out of his element here. You know what I mean? Like, mm. there there is a a modern fairy tale quality to it, most specifically with the apple orchard stuff in the particular. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's kind of overt imagery, yes. right? I mean, we're talking beyond the apple orchard. That's there's the dog. A, well, all the snow white imagery. Yes. Yes. yes right. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're clearly getting at this idea of fairy tale yeah. dream logic, but I wish it almost went farther with that stuff. Yeah. I think at some point, well, and I guess the little history of DreamWorks is important here too, right? Because yes. this was a nascent studio. This was the year they won Best Picture for American Beauty. It is. But they were also just putting out everything. Like The Love Letter came out that year and, yep. and this is one of them. And it was a bunch of films that were – it's sort of like um, like a like a blunderbuss attempt to corner every market and <laughs> – where are we that seeing company? that right now? I feel like that that sounds like something that's happening right now. What, what's <laughs> that big company? Um, 
it's but isn't it funny the way history repeats itself? Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Well, it's a model that worked, right? I mean, if you're only looking at the successes and ignoring all the failures is necessary to get to those successes, yeah. that justifies it to them. But you know, like they were just coming off the success in, in 98 of Saving Private Ryan, which was not only a huge blockbuster, but an Oscar contender, won Best Director, should win Best Picture and all that. Uh, and they wanted to have more stuff. And they just put out a bunch of like B-movies, really, mm-hmm. uh, comedies and horror movies and everything else. Um, and this is one of them. And you just you can feel that it was, you know, untitled Neil Jordan horror project for a while. Yeah, it, it, so it's, it's there to fill a uh, it's there to fill a slot. It's got a lot of money in it too. Like this movie yeah. looks pretty fantastic. It's got a, it's got a, a top I think a, a top notch below the line. I mean Darius Condry, who's a tremendous cinematographer, um, you know who who worked with uh, Jean Pierre Genet in his early films and uh, has yeah, worked with Fincher. Coming off like oh no, that was Bojan Bozelli, but he he was just coming off something major. Did he shoot the game? He did, right? Uh, I don't know if he shot the game, but it's it, all the this all the things kind of feel like the game. It actually, does, it does have that. I mean, it's it's a beautiful palette. It's it's very gothic in the way that it's shot. But there's sequences in it where you're like, I mean, they spent thirty million dollars on this movie, which mm-hmm. is probably the equivalent of fifty or sixty today. And that's you know, there's yeah. a whole sequence, that whole um, truck car crash situation that happens when she runs out into the street. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. beautifully like, choreographed. Beautifully yeah, that looks very Holy. cool. But it's just like what this crazy amount yeah. of money being spent on some of these set pieces. The two movies that came to mind as I was watching this were What Lies Beneath and The Lovely Bones, both really? films that have tremendous directors behind them um, and an amazing, fantastic production value and directors that lost the thread when it comes to tone. More so with Lovely Bones than, than What Lies Beneath. But all of these are kind of like pseudo-ghost story kind of things um, that are very well made and yet veer wildly all over the place when it comes to tone and, and story. There was a moment mm-hmm. where it reminded me of Mulholland Drive. Interesting. A moment okay. where I'm like, well, well, I don't – early on, you know what? I even took a note on it. So I will, I will, I will tell you exactly what I was thinking <laughs> for that moment because I would – for like the first sure. 20 minutes of this movie, I was liking it and I was with it. Um, what did I say? It almost has a proto Mulholland Drive quality. That's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I do. I mean, I think I sort of know what you mean, and 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 I'm I'm going to try to extrapolate from what you're saying, which is I think this film is actually very well edited too, and it's very much about consciousness and it's juxtaposing images all the time. Mm-hmm. So that's very Lynchian yeah. in its own way. So I can sort of see that a little bit. Well, and also the the quote Norm read or, or remembered about Neil Jordan and Dream Logic and yeah, yeah. the real world versus the you know cinematic world, mm-hmm. and um, there is this idea that some filmmakers have that if it makes sense in my head, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. which I think is fair. Fair. I think when I watch a Terrence Malick movie or a David Lynch movie or a Kubrick movie or a Kubrick movie, you know, that's part of the kind of the, the challenge of it to figure out how exactly these pieces fit together because they don't fit together like any other movie I've seen. Mm -hmm. But I don't think these, I don't think these pieces fit together (laughs) at all. And the other thing I, 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 I've no, I noticed is, you know, Barry Wood who, who wrote the novel or, uh, was it a short story? I think it was a a novel. You might be Um, she had one other movie made. Mm. Do you see what it was? I didn't. Dead Ringers. Yeah. Oh. So um, <laughs> the book I've read, Twins. Twins very very different from what Cronenberg did, but I think yeah, maybe that's it. It just serves as raw material. Um, that's interesting for something much more baroque and and baroque, 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 and, yeah. uh, 
and Barack, it's Barack Obama. I don't know about the word you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> I also, I, I, the other thing that I think this movie kind of suffers from a little bit is, I mean, it's it's very kitchen sinky at times. There's a lot of like, oh, and then we can do this, and we can do this, and we can do this, and the whole thing just really needs to be streamlined. It's kind of ping ponging a lot. There's a lot of stuff here that isn't really fully unpacked, but it's just like an, an additional thing that they just kind of want to add to the you know to the pie. And it, it makes it feel very kind of um, inconsistent and unfocused. Um, yeah. I'm gonna, well, I'm, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, no go ahead. I, I was going to say it's it's when it's a horror movie, it's a horror movie. But then also it's like a late 90s serial killer thriller. Yeah. It's the bone collector sometimes. Yeah. It's just – it's six or seven different things that are all fighting for prominence, which is why I thought of The Company of Wolves because that's an anthology film that has different tones. Yeah. But – it's a series of stories, and so they're all separate. They're all contained in their little pockets, and this movie doesn't have the pockets. It's just sort of, what? You know, it's, it's like watching a waiter drop a tray. Yeah. Everything yeah. everywhere. It's, it's it, you know, it's the other movie that came to mind as I was watching it is, a, is actually another Robert Downey Jr. movie, Gothica. Oh, Gothica. Gothica. Remember, Gothica. Halle Berry? Yeah. Yeah. Fred, she's in, yeah. like, a mental institution. Yeah, and Fred Durst did uh, Behind Blue Eyes for that. Did or? he? Yeah, and in the video which he directed, he made out with Halle Berry. It's a real dark moment for culture. Um, I don't remember any of that. Um, who directed that movie? I feel like it was someone of, of some Well, that note. Gothica was her post-Oscar role. Le or something? It was Le Batique. Yeah. He shot it. Her uh, Gothica – so so after Gothica, she made X-Men. But that it's Kasovitz and no, Sebastian. made X-Men. Sorry. Yeah. She made the Bond movie. Kasovitz, that's right. This was his follow-up yeah. to La N. Yeah. Sorry. After, after – <laughs> This is after X2. This Correct. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. she made X2 and she also made the Bond movie right after. Correct. But the first – Halle Berry was this. Yes, the first right. Halle Berry vehicle after her Oscar win Post was, was, was this movie, and I think it set her back about ten years. I, you know, I remember I saw Gothica in the theater, and I remember thinking this was also this was also uh, a Joel Silver Zemeckis. It was that whole company, it yeah, was, Dark, uh, Castle. Dark Castle. So it had this whole like it was a mess. How do we feel about um, mental institution movies in general? Um. No. As a genre or, or a as horror a horror genre? It's really more of a horror genre because I'm not really talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Correct. Right. Um, I'm Sweet talking more stuff. about – yeah, the In Dreams, the Gothica. I remember there was that movie Domino. Oh, no, not Domino. The, the, what was the other movie with uh, Adrian Brody? Like The Jacket? The Jacket, yeah. The yeah. Jacket. Oh, time thing. Uh, yeah. We did a movie. I would say The Haunting of, uh, of Hill, House. Hill House kind of falls a into this bit, category. Yeah. Or, yeah, because yeah, that was like an evil, evil kind of hospital. The, yeah. the House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill. Haunted Hill. And sequel. Um, but I've all of these. I was <laughs> I was reviewing stuff at the time, and I I was the I was the kid at the Toronto Star at the time, so I got all the crappy movies that the real critics didn't want to go yeah. see. And I did every horror film from like I want to say 1992 to 19 to 2001, maybe. In general, I really Crazy. don't like this yeah. as a genre. Like up up to and including Shutter Island. Like it's very limited. I like Shutter Island. Right. Like I, I it know, can only ever do. be this person is crazy or this person isn't crazy, right. and therefore there's a conspiracy. Well, it's so, it relies on an unreliable narrator, generally. Yeah. And generally, and yeah. that isn't always a satisfying device. So I agree with where you're coming. I, I remember I saw Shutter Island in the theater, and when that twist comes at the end. I, the, I remember the audience kind of groaning. Like they really were not on board. I think I groaned too. But the twist is kind of not 
really a twist and I don't want to get into Shutter Island, but like there's a part yeah. of me that feels like that movie's actually about trying to help this guy through something that he's going through as opposed to a rug pull. Mm-hmm. But mm. to have both well, those I mean, things is too there's, hard. There's a shot, I don't know, twenty minutes in. Yeah. Uh, of Ruffalo doing something behind DiCaprio yeah. and I caught it and I don't think anybody else did. It's like, Oh, I get it. And then it takes two hours to resolve itself. Yeah. yeah. If you, but, if you, yeah, if you clue in early, that movie has got to be painful to watch, but yeah. it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So, I'm going to do a quick synopsis of In Dreams for the people, uh, most of our audience who has probably not seen In Dreams. Uh, after Clairvoyant, Claire Cooper, I just realized that. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, her, I think her first name was Clairvoyant, Claire, Clairvoyant <laughs> Cooper, or Claire Clairvoyant. Yeah. Uh, played by Annette Benning, has a disturbing dream about the murder of a young girl. Her daughter, Rebecca, is found dead in a lake. When the police dismiss Cooper's offers to help their investigation, she seeks treatment with therapist Silverman, played by Stephen Ray. Uh, who diagnoses her as emotionally disturbed. As Cooper's dreams become increasingly vivid, she grows concerned that she has developed a psychic link to a serial killer, Vivian Thompson, played by Robert Downey Jr. Uh, in Dreams opened on January 15, 1999, with $3.9 million, and we're going to make $12 million on a $30 million budget. In Dreams has 24% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 40% from audiences. Uh, I'm going to read a very uh, small portion of Ebert's review, where he says, In Dreams is the silliest thriller in many a moon and the only one in which the heroine is endangered by apples <laughs> she also survives <laughs> she also survives oh, three Christ. falls from very high places two in a lake one into apples escapes from a hospital and a madhouse has the most clever dog since lassie and causes a traffic pileup involving a truck and a dozen cars with that much plot does this movie really need the drowned ghost town husbands having an affair with an australian woman flashbacks to a dominatrix mom and garbage disposal that spews apple juice all of this goofiness is delivered with style and care by a first-rate team this is a well-made bad movie uh, I think that's what you're saying, Phil. Basically, it's a well-made I, bad movie. I want, I'm going to read two very other quick things because I, I just want to kind of show a little bit of the anyway. Janet Maslin at New York Times praised the film's cinematography and Benning's performance, summarizing at heart, "In Dreams" is just a campfire story and a pretty loony one at that. But Neil Jordan has directed it furiously with lush, insinuating visual style that gets right into the skin. And the last one is uh, Ken Hankey. Uh, the associate editor of, editor of Scarlet Street, a magazine covering horror and mystery, says, given the critics are pack animals, we might as well expect this movie to get better as time passes. It's incredibly stylish, incredibly creepy, and rich in Jordan's usual Catholic symbolism. It is also seriously due for reappraisal. I think that I want to I want to show sort of a spectrum here because this is a movie that as I was watching it, 
I, I just think that at the time, I just couldn't really lock into anything that was really going on. And I think it's a mess, and I'm not I'm not really riding for it, but I do think that there's a good movie here. It's just not unpacked properly, and I'm just not sure that it totally knows what it's trying to say. Yeah, I I don't know how you get a hmm. I don't know how you get a coherent movie out of what we have. Right? I don't know how you, I was yeah. trying to watch it and trying to fix it. Like what would that's what would fair. Work? There, Streamlining. I, I think you're right. Streamlining would help because it would force it into one direction, but then you'd only have like 45 minutes of movie. There's not a lot of incident if you take out the dreams, and if you leave in the dreams, it just makes everything more muddled. I just wish there was more. Weirdly, I wish there was more Robert Downey Jr. earlier. I really yeah, I, that was surprised me on this. He shows watch. up like That's what half hour from like the end. Yeah, minutes. yeah, it's very very John Doe-y, but. I really didn't like his performance. Okay. Oh, no, it's, uh, it's not good. Yeah, and it's I really good. didn't like him in that role. Um, I just – You didn't like his wig? I didn't like him. Well, the wig <laughs> the wig was the least of, the, of, of its concerns. But, but He it, brought it, it from home. <laughs> it would take, I think, almost 10 years. I mean, I think an Iron Man was 08, right? <laughs> yes. So in 08, he, uh, he literally finds his lane. And I guess he found it in Wonder Boys to some extent. And it's <clears throat> Is a real turning point. Was that? that was kiss, kiss, bang, bang. I kiss, kiss, bang, dark. bang. Yes, very. Yeah, and that that idea of the rogue who deep down is a pretty good guy is the Robert Downey Jr. I think we all like, and Robert Downey Jr. the psycho is just terrible, and it was terrible. I think uh, I personally also thought Annette Bening was no good in this as well. I, I thought, considering she would gone to make American Beauty, which bad film, incredible performance. Um. She's she, she's better than this and not really cut out for this type of role. I, I, to me, a lot of it comes from the fact that uh, she doesn't do vulnerable but very well to me. Um, no, I agree. She, can, she, she does uh, vulnerable under a mask of security pretty well. But an openly vulnerable character like this felt very uh, off. Um, you needed, I mean, and I, I really like Annette Benning. Yeah, but she's you, amazing. You, she's obviously a tremendously talented actor. I, I as I mentioned earlier, What Lies Beneath came to mind, and you kind of needed a Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. You needed someone that you were like a movie star that you could lock into that would make up for, as we were talking about, some of the inconsistencies in terms of arc and character. But this character, and this is this is why I think like ultimately this movie doesn't work, and I, mm-hmm. I kind of want to get to the ridiculousness of the dreams in a second, but this character never comes back. This character never kicks ass. This character is murdered at the end. Like is she dead at the end? Yeah, she's dead. She reunites with her daughter underwater. Yeah. Like uh, that's, just, they never that's why Ebert Ebert Yeah, Ebert said she 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 survived three falls. I think she didn't survive the third one. <laughs> yeah. One was in a car which she survived and which was fucking dope, by the way. That shot Oh, some shit looks great. Cool. Some shit looked great. And and the Apple thing I, I can handle. But <laughs> But she dies. She she basically she she basically just like fails to save one child, fails to save another child, gets run around, gets put in a, at an insane asylum, <laughs> escapes the insane asylum. Not really sure how or why, just to get like kind of kicked around for a while, and then yeah. dies in the water and like kind of gets her revenge because now she's in his dreams, I guess. But that's not great revenge. <laughs> yeah, it was unclear revenge too. What were you going to say, Norm? <laughs> It's very petty revenge. <laughs> it's very petty. It's very. It's very hollow. Yeah. You know? No, I, I mean cold, I, cold comfort. I can't. I mean, here's what's funny is that I weirdly didn't maybe put together that she died at the end, like because I, I saw. Obviously, she goes over 
the the bridge with spoiler. We're gonna talk in order. It doesn't matter. The movie's fucking out of order. Um, she goes over the bridge with Robert. They're all out of order. This whole court is out of order. <laughs> she goes over the bridge with RDJ, and then uh, he survives that fall. Yes, he survives. She doesn't. Is what we're led to believe. Yes. They take a pulse, but they never like. You never see her like put in a body bag. Like you never actually see that she's like dead, dead. So I just kind of feel like maybe they were trying to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, technically she has nobody left. She's her kid and her husband are both dead. So the problem with the movie that, yeah, the problem with the movie that plays so much in the realm of dreams and real life and, and things underwater that you don't know is that you don't know really what happened, but I think that it necessarily ends with her being dead because I think the idea is she's going to haunt his dreams. So, yeah, that certainly feels like that's the case. Now, yeah. now, when you say that to me now, I'm like, oh, it's obvious. Yeah. But as I was watching, I didn't totally get it. Um, and she's just going to torment him for forever, I guess. Right. And I mean, if the film isn't clear in that, which which also feels like a tacked on ending too. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was originally hmm. decided that she survived and then they took it away to make it more poetic. Because, I mean, certainly Neil Jordan would have no problem killing off a protagonist. He's made movies that go dark very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bruce Robinson, I'm sure, would have been he, – he would have found it appealing to go that far um, because that's his sense of humor, right? Like his sensibility is like the, the triumph at the end of How to Get Ahead in Advertising is that the Boyle wins, uh, which again <laughs> is a wonderful movie that not enough people know about. And hopefully it's back on the Criterion channel now or something. The rights have been cleared out. But he's just – like you don't hire these two guys to make a commercial film. That's what I found so fascinating. Like Jordan had made hits. Yeah. But if you give him – his decision if you if you give him the throttle and the steering wheel he's going to drive it into a very very dark place it made me uh, wonder this concept as i was watching it it really made me wonder whether or not it, it it felt like there was some interference some studio interference to me yeah um it it just it felt like there was a lot of stuff going on um that i couldn't fully comprehend or they were just trying to jam it with a bunch of plot I just I, I there's a part of me that wonders whether or not if left to their own devices, what would this film have been? But I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard to say. Um, it's also short. It feels short. Yeah. It feels like it's yeah. just sort of hitting beats. Um, but uh, yeah. So, so I, and I just so mm-hmm. not to shit on premises, though I don't really know if this is the premise of the movie. Mm-hmm. The the mechanics of of how Vivian was able to Vivian being Not Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Uh, how Vivian was able to infiltrate Claire's dreams, uh, you can't. I, my my feeling is you can't just do that without explaining it. You yeah, can't just it, have a terrestrial character who has the ability to right. to supernaturally invade right. a human being's dreams. Who's the clairvoyant? I, do you see what I'm saying? I do. It made me think about mm-hmm. Kylo and Ray force talking in uh, in Last in Jedi. Last Jedi. Where I mean, like, you but just, they both have the force. They have the force, and, and also yeah. you know, Snoke and all that. But but um, yes, you're absolutely justified in saying that you almost wish. And again, I'm not suggesting that there be more explanations in this movie because Lord knows they explain too much as is. But you almost wish that that uh, Vivian and Claire had some sort of an interaction early in his life and they almost like imprinted each other at some point. So at least you could be like, oh, they connected in this whatever circumstance and that's what made them kind of latch onto one another psychically. Because we in the audience are looking for that. We're desperate for a reason. And you don't have to give us a great reason, just something that can be us along. Totally. And it's also, uh, it's a bit of a hat on a hat. If the, if the, 
premise was this creepy serial killer is able to infiltrate this woman's dreams. That's one thing. But the other thing is this woman's dreams in and of themselves are ha- are going to happen. Are clairvoyant. <laughs> so it's too- So it is. It's a bit of a hat on a hat. Is her dreams a John Malkovichian portal? Or is it a arrival-esque uh, – <laughs> But those two, no, are, I know, those I agree. are two of I'm the greatest. Yeah. But, but the thing about that is, like, those are two of the greatest movies ever made. Hundred percent. So, like, this shit works. That's what I mean. It does not take much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Even if it's just like you know, you have a there's a rare metal deposit in the back of your house. Like anything. Yeah. Yes. Anything. Once they yeah. both licked a penny, it doesn't. Yeah, you're built on a Native American graveyard. There yeah. you go. You have. Fu- yeah, you have yeah. But I think for uh, what was that movie? Hmm? What was the Native American graveyard? I just watched Cemetery? No, I just watched the third one. Yeah, no. Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Just but the other thing- watch a Poltergeist 3. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this though. What we are both longing for in terms of this quote from Neil Jordan, he he's deliberately not giving us. So it's not like he literally said he does not want this to be a rational logical film. So on some level, it needs to go farther in that direction and become, quite frankly, more Mulholland, of an art film. Mulholland Drive. Yeah. yeah. Well, the problem is, and the thing that Mulholland Drive abandons very quickly because they didn't make it in the it, like it, in the pilot, it would have gone on longer, but in the movie, there's just no need for it. Are the procedural elements correct? You know, the cops. There shouldn't be cops in this, or there shouldn't be psychiatrists. There. At, once this happens, and once. If yeah. you want to establish that this is a weird thing that's never happened to anyone else, she needs to go deal with it on her own, mm-hmm. which is another predictable sort of movie. But at least it's a movie that fits the context of the experience. Totally. I mean, it's there's a part of me that almost wishes that there was less cops. Forget about mm-hmm. like murder, all that shit. More of Stephen Ray, who's a little bit catatonic in this movie. So I'm not suggesting maybe him, but like but yes, that character that yes. needed to be more of of holding our hand as an audience and say, you know what I mean? Speaking in, you know, yeah. psychological, what have you to sort of give us kind of some guardrails because the, I, this is where it's sort of the studio involvement comes into play. Cause there's a part of me that's like DreamWorks wants a murder mystery. They want, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A serial killer and a murder and a cat and mouse thing. Like that's what they want. It's not what Neil Jordan wants and Bruce Robinson wants, it seems. So what we're left with is, is neither fish nor fowl. Uh, and, and it, it makes for a very confusing movie on, on a purely logistical storyline perspective. What I did enjoy and I found myself kind of falling back on was just the way that it was made, which is not mm-hmm. enough, obviously. Like that's, you know, but I also don't hate the, the, I, I didn't hate the first 20 minutes because I didn't hate the setup before yeah. it went totally off the rails. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that Annette Benning was really poorly cast. There's also just, it's, yeah, I I would agree that she's not right for it, but it also kind of it it hits the skids in a bunch of ways. Um, I'd say that second act where she's sort of trying to talk to the cops, but not really. Yeah, and then she you know she loses it, quote unquote, or he starts to you know Robert Downey Jr. starts to torture her, so she goes quote unquote crazy, and then she's put in a mental institution, then she escapes from it. like there's just too many things. Like it just needs to be just straighter aligned. You know what scene I really did kind of appreciate mm. uh, when Aiden Quinn went to the police officer to back up his wife. Yeah, you know you never get yeah. that in a movie. In you know in general, you have the Aiden Quinn character who isn't a great guy, no. saying you're crazy. You need to go to a mental mental institution. But um, I thought that was an interesting twist. I thought those that was kind of the movie I wanted to to 
the the road I wanted to go down, where her closest confidant started to believe her. Sure. Um, yeah. More but, of a domestic kind of. Whenever that guy believes you, then they're dead. So <laughs> in a movie like this, get eaten by their dog, they just get eaten by a dog. Yeah. yeah. Well, the idea of, of someone actively taking her allies away is really disturbing, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the idea that she can see him, but he can see her. That's yeah. what I, that was to me. That's the hook. That's the thing that should be the most you know, like uh, dynamic piece of action. I don't even know how you describe it, but it's the it's the propellant of the whole story. Once they figure it out, well, that that's yeah. that's Never quite do. Yeah, that's the real life nightmare to me. Is that not that nobody will believe me? I have enough people in my in, in my world who trust me. It's that those people are going to disappear. And then all I got are strangers. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. I, I mean, I, I think that there is to, – to Kenny's point, I think the movie actually opens pretty strongly. You know, I think that the the um, the flooding of the town is is gorgeous. Um, you know, they used the, the tank from Titanic in Mexico. They, they built a town. They flooded it. Um, and they sent divers down there. Uh, and this, of course, is before proper CG was available, so they had to do most of this practically. Right, which makes it which look is so much better. insanely expensive. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, looks cool. it looks great. All those shots of the water just bursting through windows and all that stuff looked fantastic. Uh, it opens really strong. You know, you've got all this diver footage. You've got Claire at this uh, – we meet her, sort of rural Massachusetts. She's illustrating children's books. Her husband's an airline pilot. I thought that was kind of interesting too. It's an interesting job in, in its own way which you don't generally see people being pilots for what that's worth. Um, And it makes him sort of not there a lot. It makes him an absent father and an absent husband. Um, She later finds out that he perhaps was having an affair, but he denies it. Um, it, It's in, we meet Claire, uh, sorry, we meet uh, the daughter, Rebecca. There's a beautiful shot early on in the movie where he buys her a kimono and there's a shot that we start on the porch with the dog and then we go up the entire house and we see this red kimono that he put that he put on her and we go th- looking through the windows of their house the the sort of the pop of color of red is really arresting there's obviously a fair amount of it in the movie as it proceeds yeah. but um but it's it's a really beautiful shot um anyway it's it it starts strong it it kind of i would argue that once we find Rebecca's body and Claire drives off that bridge, one could argue that the film goes with it. Yeah. <laughs> I like you that. Know, that was good. Wrong, but, <laughs> and and it's and and it's I guess it just becomes very sort of vague. It just doesn't really it's not it's committed to something but I don't. I couldn't tell you what it is. It's committed to a certain tone, sure, because yeah. it does kind of undermine our maxim, which is tone is everything. Well, almost. I mean. <laughs> well, but tone yeah. tone is is not function, right? Like mm-hmm. you can create yeah. a beautiful tone piece, but if it can't, uh, if it can't clarify itself, if it doesn't make sense yep. in the end, if the if the muse if the uh, if the tone is blaring against the delicacy of this thing because i mean really this is a movie that is begging you because it doesn't give you the grounding that it needs the grounding that you need as a viewer it is begging you to poke holes in it and it doesn't it doesn't invite it in the same way as 
you know, a, a Transformers movie. It's like, did they just teleport across the what? 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 Yeah, it's like it's who cares? So, whatever. Yeah, so loud mm-hmm. and so fast that no one cares. This movie wants to sort of like I, I'm sure Jordan thought about the psychological aspects of it. What would it be like to lose everyone yep. and everything? And what would it be like to have the world be unpredictable and and undependable? And what would it be like mm-hmm. to find yourself in this place? And the movie kind of has those moments where we almost get to that moment to consider it just this little plateau of peace. And then another nightmare starts up and you're just, you're, you're battered through back and forth in the theater. It's like the theater is constantly shaking and daring you to find a solid center. And it's, I mean, I remember seeing it with an audience that, and none of us enjoyed it. We all kind of knew what was going on, but it was just like, this isn't fun. It was one of the least enjoyable movies we've done on this podcast. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I can't really disagree with that. I do think though that it's, so just to kind of, as we walk through the plot a little bit, as essentially what happens is uh, Rebecca's in a play, their daughter's in the play. She's playing, I believe she plays the evil witch, if I'm not I mistaken. she plays the mirror. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it is, of course. Yeah, because then she has to do that mirroring stuff. Right. Yeah. Dream sequence. Um, so Rebecca goes missing. And I have to say that was a very effective sequence. Powerful. Really good stuff. I was surprised how relentless that was. It was re- – it, it, and it goes on for a bit too. Yes. Like it doesn't just kind of tear off the Band-Aid as she screams trying to kind of figure out where – not screams, but like she's calling her daughter and they're all behind these masks and she can't find her daughter, can't find her daughter. And then it kind of um, – it's sort of – I don't know what the right way to – put it but it sort of overflows into the 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 bordering woods around this school as they try to find her and her screaming her daughter's name is very effective i think the net mm-hmm. benning is tremendous in that scene um and then ultimately uh yeah she basically they this was it's so strange where i didn't really understand she can see that they found the body of her of rebecca so she yeah, just, it breaks her before anyone else knows what's going on. That moment right. where she just starts kind of wailing, she's gone, she's gone. That's really powerful. It's really powerful. Mm-hmm. But then she sees Aiden Quinn, her husband, and is like, I can't, I can't. And she gets in the car and she peels off. And which leads into like a car chase between essentially the cop and and Claire. And I wasn't sure what was going on until it was clear that she was looking for an opportunity to to try to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And I think it's supposed to be a revelation, like a big shocking revelation when we figure out what's going on. But it's just – it's, it's so weird. staccato in the execution that you Correct. can't get a grip on it. Yeah. T- one thing you left out was, yeah, is this idea that she's been having these visions before her daughter disappeared. Right. And she thought they were visions of another girl mm-hmm. who had disappeared and was in the news. So she thought she was seeing things that had happened in the past. And what actually happened was that she was seeing visions of her daughter getting abducted right. in the future – so um, when that happened, I think she felt like I could have stopped this. And, and right, there's something. It's like again, this is one of those things where it's a movie that is done a disservice by explaining itself when it's happening. If that makes any sense, like when she's being dragged off and she's like, "No one told me yeah. it was the future." You're just sort of like, "What? Okay." Like you have to say that line of dialogue so that people understand to a certain degree what's going on. Mm-hmm. But it does a disservice to it when you hear it out I loud. No, because like yeah. Lost said it, you know, right. and then Arrival right. said it. Like you do have to kind of say it, and yeah. everyone will just move on. Like I guess that's true. It's yeah, okay. That's fair. That's fair. So or just a longer a longer shot of her looking horrified and putting the pieces together. I mean, actors can sell this stuff. Yes, it's just she's not given the chance to. Yeah, and 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 to sort of all of our point 
she's not the right vehicle for it. Is Annette Benning's not the right vehicle for it for all intents and purposes? I think that Who that would you have gone with. I mean, back in '99, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, truthfully, Michelle Pfeiffer would have would have been better. Mm-hmm. Um, someone I of that. I was yeah. thinking about Nicole Kidman. Sure. Yeah, it feels like a very Nicole Kidman. Yeah, role. like yeah. ten years after Deadcom, she still had that energy. Yeah, no, she could, yeah. absolutely could have been someone like that. I mean, I think that it, it, there's. There's any number of actors that I think would have been – I guess the point is that Annette Benning doesn't really channel maternal all that well. No, no. You she, know? She, 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 is it a warmth thing? Interestingly enough – It feels uh, a little bit like a warmth For thing. me – because she can, I mean, she's she does great with hostile focus. Yes. yes. And I'm just one, like, especially in the second half of the film when, when she starts to understand what's going on. Yeah. But the – yeah, I don't know. I think I don't think she's bad in the film. I do think she's miscast, but I think she does the best she can with with an underwritten role. Like I agree with just, that. There's not a lot for her to work with. Um, for me, the, the the actor that comes to mind is her wife from The Kids Are All Right. Oh, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. Sure, I think would yeah. have killed it. Yeah. Well, you can't kill this movie. Yeah, sure. But you know, even Kate Blanchett might have been interesting. A lot of actors. Catherine Keener play in this sure. lane, you know, yeah. a lot of like, like really do kind of yep. do this kind of thing. A lot, a, a lot of female actors, Annette Benning does steely, comp- steely competence really well. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a chilly actor yeah, she and, is. and not, and not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, I, I, you know, one of my favorite Annette Benning performances, perhaps even my favorite Annette Benning performance is 20th Century Women. And it's not that she's not maternal in that movie. She is. Um, but but there's there's something very cerebral about Annette Benning. She doesn't seem like a person that's like – not emotion is the wrong word, but I think you know what I'm getting at, which is that there's something very kind of clinical almost in its own way about the way that she approaches things. And this character is just – is literally just bursting with emotion. In her – in the movies where she's played a parent that have worked, Kids All Right – 20th century woman. American beauty. American beauty. Yes, absolutely. American beauty. She has approached parenthood like it's a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, or her character has, and she does that really well. This movie is all emotion. This movie yeah. is 100% emotion. And I don't think she nails that. You know who it. would have been interesting in this is Gwyneth Paltrow. She would have been interesting. She would have been great. Oh, yeah. I, I love yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow. But so at this point, uh, she could have sold the confusion a lot better. I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. She's got that. She's got a great reaching quality, Correct. especially around that time where she's playing people who are sort of trying to figure themselves out and figure their way through things. She's also never been in any horror. That's movies that I, that I, was, I don't think. And I, 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 but I don't know if that's, I don't choice. think she could. I think she absolutely can handle uh, a lot more than she's handled, but she does not – she's not challenged herself in this direction very often. Correct. You know? I mean she challenges herself in other directions, mm-hmm. but in this direction, psychological thriller kind of thing, um, I really would like to see it. I think that this movie would have benefited from – in its own weird way, and I wasn't really a fan of their output necessarily, but, but we talked about it earlier. But the Dark Castle brand is sort of what this movie needed a little bit. It's like a, make it pulpier. Yeah, I was just, like, it, it's well as we've said sort of a couple times here. The the movie just needed to really commit to totally. a direction, and yeah. if it was gonna be pulpy in a horror movie, then you put like you know 
Hillary Swank or Kate Hudson or somebody like that into a dark castle vehicle. And you turn that into this, this into that, that is, um, you know, instead we're left with this like sort of interesting, but, but ultimately unengaging thing. But it's also just, there's times when it's just downright silly. There's that moment when she's digitally painting apples on her computer screen. The internal conflict in this movie is, are we a highbrow art film or are we a lowbrow B movie? Pick one, pick a lane. Really? It's like, it's, it's, it's that simple to me. I totally agree with you. And I would also argue that it's the, you know, like from the Oscar winning director of the crying game on the, on the poster or from the director of interview with a vampire. It's the same person, but they're different modes. Yeah. And he, and I, I wonder whether or not he knew what mode he was in. If DreamWorks knew what mode they wanted it just sort of – yeah, you're absolutely right. Like Neil Jordan's not necessarily the problem because he can execute on either side. But – Yeah, um, I, think, I think he made a movie that we'll never get to see. I mean this, this feels like a recut. This feels like I the agree. ending feels tacked yeah. on. Release yeah, the Jordan just, cut. Like just, <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Seriously. Could you imagine? It would be nice to see what he wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at Gwyneth Paltrow's filmography right now. <laughs> no horror movies. I was Not, just thinking she's been in stuff that's psychologically – she's in Seven. She's in Malice. But in both cases, she's sort of removed from the actual – She's not in Malice. That's meat. my Nicole Kidman. She, she is in Malice. She is? Yeah. She's not yeah, the Nicole Kidman role. She's a but, student. She's just yeah. a – she's oh, a – wow. It's like one of her first roles. Wow. Yeah. And I mean you know, I, I kind of like the Perfect Murder remake but yeah. that's not what we're doing here either. And Talented Miss Ruby, there's obviously a pretty strong psychological aspect to it. But she yeah. again is not part of it. No, yeah. she's insulated from all yeah. of them. It's it's yeah. interesting. She uh, she really has kind of stayed. She she's really stayed between two pretty pretty uh, sturdy guardrails. I will say though, I've watched the trailer for the Goop Lab, and some of that actually seemed legitimately terrifying. <laughs> Goop Lab. You know what you I liked her in? I liked her in Contagion. I've never seen Contagion. Oh, it's a good movie. She's very, no. she's very well hypochondriac. Used yeah, she <laughs> is. Soderbergh casts her for a very specific reason, and he's and it, they're both great at it. To saw open her skull. <laughs> He's kind of. It's yeah. very clever. And yeah. people yeah. kind of at that moment in her in her career, people kind of wanted her to die of a horrible illness. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing. I think I was with Laura at the time, 2011. I was, um, and great. I th- and I, I remember being in the theater, and 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 it just works perfectly. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so Claire has like an apple meltdown in her kitchen with like a million apples <laughs> at this point. As you um, do. It's, I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't work. It goes on too long as well. It's like that that whip shot, that aerial whip shot of her throwing apples in the sink from the counter to the. It was just, it kind of goes on for too long. But it's like when the when the sink starts like blowing up all that applesauce. First of all, it made me think about the vomit from Witches of Eastwick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, apple. Ju- it looks like apple juice. <laughs> it did look like apple juice. It's like cider, really. <laughs> <laughs> but it looked cool. Yeah. It just I don't know. I, I it's, it's it's just, just silly. silly. Yeah, I mean, silly. it is ultimately it's, if you see it, if you the same problem kind of came up in the first it movie where the the you know, there's the sink that vomits blood all over everyone and only the kids can see it. That at least worked because the kids were still sort of stuck with the practical nature of having to clean it up and deal with it. Yeah. This sure. movie just gives you the image and then runs away. I'd also say I mean, I I truly loved the first it. It works because, you know, it's apropos. It's blood. And now it's not the smart yeah, it's not yeah, the smartest most it's it's not the smartest most highbrow thing, but it's blood. It works. <laughs> this is a little bit 
a wag the dog. (laughs) It just feels like someone decided we're going to do Snow White imagery Mm -hmm. and then said, throw the apples in there. (laughs) More apples. And then they go to an apple factory at the end. Like literally – it's like it's called an apple factory. Yeah, but it's it's just it's, it's so heavy handed with an apple the, on an apple. It's an apple on an apple <laughs> on an apple. Uh, it's so heavy handed with this apple imagery that's apple propos of nothing. <laughs> yeah, I find that in Toronto. Yeah, 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 yeah. You should. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's weird. It almost feels. I would. I would believe that it was. It was reshoot stuff where you know what we really need to do is lean into the Snow White of it. But I don't know that that's possible. It also. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm sure there maybe there were some reshoots, but it also just felt like additional footage they had like just using stuff <laughs> in ways that just didn't make a ton of sense to me. Oh yeah, you know, guys, we shot at the orchard for six. Yeah, weeks. <laughs> yeah. It's more apples. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say something, but I forgot. We knew. <laughs> Sorry. So we shot, we shot at the or- well, we shot at the orchard. It was Apple related. Oh, you know what? I I, I looked mm. up um to see if uh the original Snow White had a the original, you know, the Grimm's brother, the OG one. Yeah, the the the, the, the Brothers Grimm. Um, see if it had a you know kind of a downer of an ending like this because I did it. No. No, it's really the Hans Christian Andersen ones that uh, have the horrible uh, endings. Like Little Mermaid, where she you know dies right, right, of like nail feet right. or something. Um, yeah, but uh, no, or like the one the one they did for Fantasia, little uh, the 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 Tin Drummer. The oh yeah 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 yeah, or yeah. whatever it was, awful, awful, awful. But Good the, stuff. The Grimm brothers, Grimm brothers, usually have kind of the same ones the Disney's endings have, and this one does. It's just a lot more gruesome. Um, but I thought maybe they, maybe that's why they went with this miserable, horrible ending where everyone dies. <laughs> but Amazing. No, 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 it's even darker than the original 19th century fairy tale. So at, th- <laughs> at this point, um, Claire has more visions, more dreams. She believes she's witnessing the movements of her daughter's killer, the serial killer, serial murderer named Vivian Thompson. Um, I kind of want to, uh, we can unpack this as we get to it, um, but there is something I, I want to talk about with with Vivian. But um, so Claire uncovers this underwater city that ex- that she's experienced in her dreams. It's a former town called Northfield, which was flooded when a reservoir was formed. Um, she starts to see more visions. Uh, she sees her psychologist, played by uh, Stephen Ray, Doctor Silverman. She's committed to a psychiatric institution. After so, did she slit her wrists? Did I miss that? She did slit her wrists. Yes. When, yeah. I don't. It's remember. after her failure to. Um... Oh. To save her daughter. That's what ends her. That's what gets her into the uh, hospital, right? Yeah. Right. But she also vis- envisions Paul's murder at that point. Mm-hmm. You know that that, and then there. Well, I might be jumping ahead, but there was that other kind of where she sees his face being eaten. By yes, her yes. Yeah. Um. Also, so we were talking a little bit about this earlier in terms of like movies that take place in institutions. That scene when she's in that circular padded room with uh, Margot Martindale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um. The music, and I generally, I actually really like Elliot Goldenthal's scores. Um, I think that they, uh, his score for this, uh, his score for Titus, which is also 99, his score for Heat, um, great scores. Even his Batman Forever score I love. Uh, The score in that scene is like playful. It's like yeah. we're supposed to be like laughing yeah. at her or something. I just didn't understand. It is, and it's yeah. also like it's, it's a madhouse. It's a fun house. Yeah, it's yeah. Really, okay. Funny, you know, people now nowadays get Margot Martindale and Ann Dowd confused a little bit. Uh huh. Um, sure. But we've now seen them both in 1999. Yes. Ann Dowd well, was what a was Ann Dowd in she was Freaks in and Freaks and Geeks. Geeks. Oh, 
of course. She was Kim Kelly's I mom. I haven't listened to any of those. Yet. Oh, she played a completely she so so Anne Dowd was a completely different person. Yeah. Uh physically. Margot Martindale was Margot Martindale. She, <laughs> she, she was born Margot Martindale. Mar, born Margot Martindale and stayed Margot Martindale. <laughs> but um yeah, it's weird. Uh so now we get to this place where the film, in my opinion, almost fully commits to the camp when she when she's trying to escape and then subsequently escapes from the mental institution. Because it's now gotten to this place where yeah. it's I mean, that whole vision with her in the red dress when she's walking do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Where yeah. she where she sees her husband's death, sort of. Um, is is pretty silly, and then there's this almost twelve monkeys vibe to her trying to get out of the, out of oh, the mental yeah. institution. Another institution yeah. movie. <laughs> um, so it's kind of strange, but she so she she pretends to. Here's where the movie is also very confusing, which is it parallels her escape with Vivian's escape. Yeah, which finally, at least, establishes a commonality. Like, there's some sort of continuity between the two of them. Right, but it's like but a timeline thing? Point, it's like, no, I don't want to root for him. Yeah. It's also just like, it. you brought up Lost, but it almost feels like the record. It almost, in season five of mm-hmm. Lost, when you sort of have these two things that are happening, it's like almost parallel universes that are happening at this. And, and it's, yeah. again, interesting in theory. But, like, you got to fucking execute that thing. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm watching. You know what's weird? This movie kind of was begging for, and I'm surprised Neil Jordan didn't go there. Something sexual between them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? I think Downey's trying in the last act. Yeah. He's, like, he's very physically close and imposing and doing this weird childlike thing, which keeps tilting into, like, adult anger and rage. But I don't think, yeah, I don't think Benning is either Benning is aware of it and resisting it, or she's not aware of it at all, and it's just kind of firing off into nothing. Yeah, I, and again, I, it's just like a lack of focus that that undermines everything in the third act of that movie. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear what Robert Downey Jr. thought he was doing. What, like, because it's too. it's a really because like the truth is that Robert Downey Jr.'s career up until him getting sober, becoming Iron Man is a fascinating career of, of, of a myriad of really interesting career of of interesting performances. Some of which he might remember, some of which he probably doesn't (laughs) remember. Um, And, and this feels like this might've been around that time. Um, I I met him in the first time I met him, it was in 95 on the the restoration junket. Okay. The the utterly forgotten Miramax um, all-star that, that year's all-star Miramax Oscar contender that turned out to be nothing at all. Um, but he was newly sober. He had just shot, this was 95. So he was, he shot it. I think he shot it before and after natural born killers, if I remember correctly, because there were right. a lot of reshoots in, uh, involved in, yeah. in resolution uh, or resolution restoration. And he said like at the time that, um, how did he put it? It was about finding the right place to put himself mm. in the, like in the role, because the character is this, young confused doctor who is easily seduced and hangs around with a king and then falls in love with meg ryan and all of these other things happen and it's just like it's kind of all the canterbury tales in one but it's not that either because it's a complete mess but he was saying like it was just about trying to figure out not who he was from scene to scene but where he goes in the movie and what he does and i think that kind of applies to that entire swath of his career where he's looking for a place to put the energy and this comes along and it's like how are you going to say no 
It's just like you can do yeah. whatever the hell you want. Yeah. You've got contact lenses and a wig. Nothing you do is wrong. And so we see every choice. Yes. Yes. I would agree with all of that. Um, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I, it's part of it too is it's like, um, he's playing quote unquote, the third man role in this, right? Which is the, the, the character that's being talked about through the entire movie so that when he shows up, you need to, you know, you, you, there's a, there's a suspense and there's a, I don't know. They, they, they just don't really know what to do with him. And this is kind of where I, I, I want to kind of get your thoughts on. What is is there a a trans component to this Vivian character that they're not really talking about or doing anything with? The, I mean, obviously the name Vivian is a, is a that's a relatively feminine name, androgynous name, yeah. In this case, and and he is wearing these wigs, and there is kind of this I don't know. There's a there's there's a femininity quality sort of quality or component to this character that I wasn't entirely clear on. And perhaps they weren't doing this and maybe it was just sort of whatever, but I would, I don't know. Yeah. I I would think that Neil Jordan who made the crying game would be clear about this, right? Like if that was in there, it would be in there in an obvious way. And I was just wondering if maybe, you know, given the whole snow white metaphor, Downey thought of the phrase wicked queen and tried to play that like, but as a, as a, a literal queen rather than a, yeah, uh, a royal queen, and I don't think that works either. I, it's just there is a there is a delicacy in his performance. He's playing an overgrown child, but also he's playing a hostile, violent man. So like an adult male man, and I don't, yeah, I don't know that there's a any kind of a trans aspect to it, but it isn't right either. Like there's no there's no grounding. We don't know who or what he thinks he right. is. That's the, sort of what I'm getting. The monster at. at the end of the book. There's also not really. Um, th- not that when you make a, not that you you kind of adapt loosely adapt a any kind of literary work or fairy tale, you have to be one to one. But there yeah. is a confusion about what they're adapting, because this is not Snow White. This is a lot closer to Little Red Riding Hood. You sure, know? he's not. Sure, he yeah. he he's stealing the little girls, and mm-hmm. he is a wolf, mm-hmm. and he is he is hiding. But you know these goddamn contact lenses. I just like they're awful. <laughs> And then yeah, to yeah. to your your question about whether there's a trans element, um, my sense is if you think it's there, it probably is. Particularly because in the '90s, it was kind of a go-to for highbrow stuff. Like uh, Silence of the Lambs is a pretty prominent trans element. There is, yeah. Um, and also Crying Game, which really doesn't hold up so well. You know the it, fair point. It, the uh, the the revelation that you know that what what was what was her name in the movie Dill that Dill, Dill. was yeah is is a guy is a guy and that being a horrible thing and that or, being yeah, a, or a, at some, least some, male some grand deception and mm-hmm. that yeah, uh, but it's it's also from the point of view of someone who's very clearly obliviously head of your set. Like, I mean I, I think the crying game works as a narrative because it is about a man. Uh, whose revulsion turns into attraction because it's something about himself that he can't understand or accept rather than the person that he's in love with. And I think Stephen Ray plays that really beautifully. And it is hugely problematic in the rearview mirror, uh, mostly because of the way it's filmed. But I think the basic point, the beats of it are still pretty solid. And that's what makes me think that that element isn't here because Jordan handled it so well in terms of the narrative that he was telling the last time. I mean, unless something was cut out of it dramatically. 
That's really interesting. I, I do think that I, I think that to Kenny's point, what what doesn't necessarily work about the crying game now is that at the time, um, and again, I, I was pretty young when it came out, but uh, it was about how shocking it was. Like it was it was about the sort of the um, you know the the oh my god, you know reveal at the end of the mm. movie um well, but it's but it's not at the end of the movie that's what i mean like everybody forgets oh, yeah? it was like 20 minutes well 40 minutes in which, really which, yeah which the may, first 20 yeah. minutes i didn't know that mm, which which may have been a marketing tool more than anything sure sure but sure. yes it was a movie yeah, well, i mean that was the movie that don't give away the secret be quiet i, I saw the press screening at uh, at tiff um and we were handed a piece of paper out on our way out of the movie from, again, from Miramax, the geniuses of marketing that they were, uh, saying, please don't spoil the ending. Don't reveal the secret. And it's like – and I, my first thought was it's not the ending. It's really – it's surprisingly early on. The, the trans stuff is dealt with and thrown out very, very quickly. You're supposed to – like you go into the gay bar yeah. that, that Fergus doesn't know is a gay bar and you're kind of – he has that great conversation with Jim Broadbent who Broadbent clearly thinks that Fergus knows more than he knows – and then on the way back out, it's just like, oh, everybody in here is is trans. That's kind of fascinating. It's, it never hid it from the camera. It only hides it from Fergus, which is why I think the film still works because it's it, that subjective aspect of it is really powerful. And also it's much, much earlier than you think it is. Most of the movie is about Dill – or uh, Fergus trying to protect Dill. Yeah, it's about halfway through, right? And then it then now a it's, still kind of, it's all kind of coming back to me now. And then it kind but of gets really upsetting. But yeah. It's Everybody also – there's a penis and then there's horrific vomiting, which is <laughs> shitty. But it's supposed to be shitty. I think we're supposed to not be with Fergus a minute later. We're supposed to make him – you know, like he's starting to – this journey about who he is and what he wants. And we, I think, are allowed to go, oh, that was a really bad way to take that information. I think it, it – not to get too deep into the crying game. You're making a very good argument for it. I think it's – I it's, guess it, like it's 1992. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's also – Fair to acknowledge where the audience in general was, even progressive audiences back then. Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely fair. And that uh, that reaction may have been necessary to for the audience to start sympathizing with Stephen Ray's journey throughout the rest of the movie. Possibly, I mean, it yeah. is certainly a way of keeping them on the movie's side or on the filmmaker's side. I think it's really Thank fascinating on, on, on to some degree a, a slightly different tact, but it is fascinating that that that's the movie that made Miramax. Yeah, yeah, they, they well, were they were they were hovering yeah. hovering in bankruptcy, and that movie popping and getting the Oscar nominations and getting all that sort of stuff, and then it became kind of their calling card movie. You know, so many films after that were about sort of you know trying to, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, market off of shocking things oh, yeah. to a certain degree. Priest, like eighteen yeah. months later, was one of theirs. Yeah, uh, the piano, like they were yeah. constantly courting attention with X ratings and everything else. Yeah, I, I mean, mean they, they were—that that was their thing. It's—it's it's really awful that they're all tied to this, yeah, this no. personal horror as well. I know. But yeah, it's a—it's a check mark on almost all of their movies. It is interesting. Um, so basically, at, at this point in the film, Claire escapes the mental institution. We see that her escape parallels and is juxtaposed with Vivian's escape when uh, he was younger. I want to say a teenager or something to that effect. Or, Mm. I don't know, age-wise. Um, but uh, this is, again, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole again, but I do think that juxtaposing um, Claire and Vivian, one being a woman, one being a man, does, there's just, a, there's a lot of, of, of 
gender fluidity going on in this portion of the film, which I, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it's perhaps a slightly confusing thing. Um, but all that being said, uh, Vivian then gets to the Apple factory where uh, Vivian has stolen or, or kidnapped a child, but I don't know where this child came from. Did you guys know who this child was? This Ruby? No, we just see the visions of him taking her. Okay. Or at least we think we do. And Ruby's like totally fine with Vivian. Yeah. <laughs> like kind of on Vivian's side. Kind of just being like, you made her really, you made him mad. It's like, what's happening here? Uh, anyway, so Vivian, who is driven mad by his own severe childhood abuses, holds Claire hostage at this factory. The police manage to track Claire. Again, don't know how they track her, but they track her somehow to the Apple factory where there's a face off and while the SWAT team attempts to uh has a sniper oh yeah uh, full fugitive at that point it's like helicopters and snipers and claire and and rdj go over the bridge uh into a waterfall again this stuff all looks pretty spectacular yeah yeah um it does great second unit work i mean they (laughs) had the money (laughs) Uh, they both go over the guardrail. Claire and Vivian plunge to the falls below in the water. Claire has a vision of being reunited with her daughter before drowning. Uh, later, Vivian, who survived the fall, is committed to the same psychiatric institute where Claire had been incarcerated. We then would see our mirror gag. Uh, which gag. It's kind, it's kind <laughs> of a gag. Where he's like looking at himself in the mirror and then you get that as like two hands come out and pull him into the mirror and smash the mirror. And then he sees blood as it says – Sweet dreams, Vivian scrawled all over the ceiling, and he smashes his face into the window of the jail cell or the psychiatric cell. Yeah. And screams, and we her. get that CG wipe at the end that yeah. just says, "You know, we have technology, but we don't know what to we do. don't know what to do with it." <laughs> it's kind of used a couple times in her visions with the apples, yeah. which which feel look like cool. Reshoots. That for some reason yeah. that feels like post production, where it's like, "No, this thing looks cool. It'll fix the problem we have." And it does <laughs> yeah. just like that's the way to fix it. Yeah. I do love the fact that um in Ebert's review, he really for whatever reason, he really hangs on to this they should have cut the Australian woman affair part of it. And I'm like, Ebert, you are missing the point. That that the, <laughs> that Australian woman has like she's in one scene. They talk about it for five seconds. Like that is she's not the problem. She's not the problem. Of course. I don't love it's like you could lose it. I mean, it, you, it's, sure. it's true that there are a lot of different tentacles on this thing that could just get lopped off. But then, like, then then Paul's nothing. Then her husband's basically a just non-existent character for all intents and purposes. I didn't love him laughing at her when she found out about the affair where he was just like, oh, you. It's like, yeah. hold on a second. Also, Aiden Quinn. Thoughts? Aiden Quinn. As an actor? It's not, it's not his fault. <laughs> like, it's, an un, it's an unplayable role. I think Aiden Quinn... I'm not convinced I'd ever seen an Aiden Quinn before this or Music of the Heart, the other movie we did this year. Really? Oh, I'd seen him in a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I don't really know him that. I really don't know him that well. I think he's like really handsome, very handsome, like great really eyes, really masculine, really yeah. handsome, mm-hmm. and he's also a stage actor. And I'm surprised he didn't become more of a thing. I was a little surprised too. I think the first thing he that I never noticed really went him. away, right? Like he was always around. He's been working constantly, but he's yeah, he wasn't an a-lister he's never you know he's never been in a movie that got nominated or, no. or he's never been had a nominated performance he's never really he's never been what he he to me he easily could have been which is a a leading man in dramatic roles and in, in kind of big movies and yeah. american liam neeson almost well you know he's irish right is he not now he's is, both um, he's okay. american born okay sorry what were you yeah. saying norm 
Oh, um, I'm thinking like he's in Legends of the Fall. He was in yeah, Fran- yeah. He's in the Framing Device of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh, that's right. Uh, I think I first caught the him framing in Framing Device. That sounds right. Yeah, he was Benny. That's oh true. no, he's in, sorry, I'm just rolling. He's like one of the bad guys in Stakeout. Apparently, he's uh, great in Avalon. That's the movie that I remember. Tale. That's the first that I really, thing I really recognized. I really know the old Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, uh, but no, he's the oh damn it, who's the Australian actor um, who just you played John Connor in the last Terminator. Uh, not Darth oh, Fate, the other Clark, Genesis. Jason Clark, Jason Clark, yeah. Jason oh. Clark. He has the same quality yeah. where everything about him says that he should be a leading man, but there's something missing. Jason Clark is my uh, my wife's favorite looking man. Okay. How about that? <laughs> Jason Clark's great. I, I mean, I, I think that Aiden Quinn, who I do quite like and has made a bunch of movies that I enjoy, I do like the um. He's in the framing device of Frankenstein. Yeah. I hope that's how his agents pitch him. <laughs> um, Dude, none of this is your fault. You're just in the framing. <laughs> God, that movie. Talk about a movie said, that doesn't I have work. To say, but... the, well, like one of the single greatest burns on anybody I've ever heard uh, was was Quinn saying that uh, he was talking about historical accuracy, and it was about. Although he never specified it, he said the idea that you know there are movies where people rip their shirts off and reveal muscles that weren't physically possible because Nautilus equipment didn't exist in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And you just have to take this moment and go, oh my god, that's right, you were in that movie. That, yeah, I mean. Directorial vanity. It's just perfect. Um, yeah, but yeah, he's a guy who, like, he's in Practical Magic. He's been oh, that's the right. guy in a lot of movies. Yeah, never seen that. And he's got a, like, he's got a really comfortable niche as a sort of sensitive action man kind of thing where, you know, he's a guy you can rely on. He's a little bit physical, but he's mostly just a, a, a good listener and sensitive. Um, Kenny, I think, I think you would like Aiden Quinn's filmography. Stuff. I don't think I would, but I, I feel like, you know what a role I, I feel like he should have played? Mm. And I never really understood why the guy who played it played it. It was Aaron Eckhart's role in Aaron Brockovich, which I never really like got the Aaron. He's great in it. Mm, okay. But like, but he he's like, like really obviously wearing a wig though. Like he, it's one of those things where he, he, he looks fakey a bit. It's got that like Gary Oldman ish. And I don't mean this, like Gary Oldman's the guy who could pull this off where he like, he can just kind of like do anything and you kind of like accept it. But that wasn't what I wanted. I, I, I would have liked to see an Aiden Quinn do that thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I also I, like I, him to be in a romance with Julia Roberts. He seems like, the, he seems like he's the kind of guy who could hold his own against one of the biggest female movie stars in the world. And they're not a lot of guys and not as like, you know, a an equal. Like a guy yeah, who can play that's, the that's his quality, right? Play like the love and prove. Yes. He looks he looks like he can handle that. Whatever that is, he can take it. I like wish a, like the Dermot Mulroney type thing. I wish that Aiden Quinn could hmm. hear the two of you talking so favorably about him oh. and what he could what he's capable of. <laughs> now he's I mean, like now he's like sixty and it's all over. But well he did seven seasons of elementary for elementary, I mean, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he did. He's getting paid. He did. Um I said, I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> not, to, not to die. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's it's he's he is he is short shrift in this movie. But I'll say this for him, which is that there's not much on the page in no. this role, mm-hmm. but he brings a very interesting energy to the stuff that he has. Like what you were saying, Kenny, of him fighting for his wife, going to the police office, yeah. and and and. You know, trying to make it work, but also struggling with their marriage, obviously, and feeling tempted by you know uh, adultery and all this sort of stuff. There's 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 some marginally interesting stuff that that you know he kind of pulls out of it. He should have gotten his own show. Oh, okay. In the in the pre movie star HBO era, in the James Gandolfini gets his own show era. 
He could have been, or or I could have seen him on like a, what was that show, Brotherhood on uh, on sure, Showtime. Sure, Showtime. Yeah, he could have been. He could have been on Oz, something like that. Yeah, yeah. The era, Intense, like, but the yeah. J.K. Simmons Tail. gets to be the star of a show type thing, like yeah. that. That era, like, I think he could have really had something exciting. But Aiden Quinn. <laughs> Um, Quinn. Still loved, man. Come on. <laughs> Can we talk for a second about how surprisingly violent this movie is? Like, yeah, I was surprised I at how bloody it was. Given Bill Jordan, right? like, I just I Very knew going bloody. in that the guy who's made horror movies, and but, once the concept is established, like it's gonna, it's about murdered children. It's gonna be brutal. Lots of blood too. So right. I, I, I also so just to because to come full circle a little bit on on some of the Vivian stuff that we were talking about, um, and and how. Neil Jordan plays with gender interview with the vampire is another movie where mm-hmm. he kind of really plays with that stuff and, and sort of um, plays with the, obviously the sexuality of vampires, but also the kind of, I don't know what the, the right way to, to describe it, but sort of like uh, they seem to be game for having sex with anything that moves for lack of a better way of putting it. Like they don't seem that, you know, they're, 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 they're open to all sorts of things. Yeah. And, I think that that well, that's um, like that's classic vampire stuff, right? If you live long enough, you're going to want everything, right? You're going to just you're going to run out of things that I think that was one of the tenets of Anne Rice's books is just like they become um, omnivorous, both right. emotionally and sexually. They'll just they'll take everything and everyone. But it seems to be only with men in Interview with the Vampire. Um, there doesn't seem well, they, to you know. Yeah, they play up, and they also play up that the. the, the you know homoeroticism is basically just like they're a, they're an old married gay couple by the end of their relationship they're just like there's that one moment where tom cruise is basically just bitching about lewis bitching yeah it's it's it definitely uh interview with the vampire is is more about um i guess sort of paternal qualities to a certain degree and looking for but i don't know it's it's interesting i love interview with the, interview with the vampire um it's it's a i tremendous must admit movie. i haven't seen it in like 20 years you should watch it again uh, it's actually i, I really i'd really like to watch it again too i think I keep wanting i keep yeah. trying to like it's there's always something else this is the problem with my job now that i'm covering 85 streaming shows as well as the movies that are coming out <laughs> right I, there's no time to watch something that i want to watch right i get that but it's I, on the list. I i love it it's a great movie um it might be my favorite neil jordan movie if i'm being completely mm-hmm. honest um i i have you seen um byzantium no i don't know what that is that was his other vampire movie that came out. I want to say five or six years ago. It's probably further back. Gemma Arterton and uh, Saoirse, Saoirse Ronan are in it. Really, as, as vampire sisters who are more or less. All right, I'm gonna watch that one. Mother daughter relationship. Yeah, it's 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 that not cool. It's not. Yeah, it's not great. It kind of misses <laughs> something that it's aiming for, but it's not bad. There's some stuff in it that's really interesting, and it's more successful in what it wants to do uh, than than in dreams. <laughs> A low bar, but sure. <laughs> that's fair. Um, in terms of, you know, Neil Jordan plays with supernatural tropes. It's it's square in the middle between Interview with the Vampire and In Dreams. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll that's I mean that cast alone makes me want to check it out. Uh, he's yeah. he's a very interesting filmmaker. I want I want to see more of his movies. We talked to, we talked actually very briefly about him, um, or not briefly. We talked about him a little bit when we did Angel's Ashes about how a Neil Jordan version of that movie would have been a much better movie. Yeah, I and, uh, absolutely agree. And I believe he does have actually he has two movies in 99 the end of the affair oh right is also oh, his movie so oh, i'm excited will, to watch yeah, that we'll again. be back for neil oh, jordan that's that's, that's cool. a really good movie yeah. yeah and that pairs in with julianne moore i was gonna say it's... julianne moore yeah. yeah end of the affair was was in a different year might have been more of an oscar contender she was nominated yeah, yeah. 
It's, yeah, it's it a good movie. I think it was one of those movies. It was released really late in the year, if I remember correctly, and it yeah. barely had. I don't think it had any festival play, and it just kind of rolled into theaters at the last minute. And I don't think the Academy was looking for because in '99, when everything is electric and exploding, and and you know, like American cinema is having this huge revolution to see a really well executed, subtle drama. Yeah, is just kind of not going to take it that year. But I am looking Fair forward enough. to that quite a bit. It's it's a good one. Um, yeah. And there's a DVD out there for anyone listening, and you and you guys as well, that has both films on it. The ninety five, oh, sorry, the ninety nine and the nineteen fifty five original, hmm. and that's amazing. It's just fascinating to see the same story played out two different ways. That sounds super cool. I, I would. I mean, I'm excited to do uh, End of the Affair again because I remember quite liking it, and I, I I saw it in the theater, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to reappraising that. Um, it's so one that's just kind of disappeared. It really deserves a repra- um, reappraisal. So Norm, um, are you ready to perhaps rate this movie? Is that something? Oh that- yeah, let's do it. So I don't. I'm sure you, as you are a longtime listener, I, I will still walk you through that. We basically sure. do. Uh, we if you saw it in '99, which I did, and I believe you did, um, yeah. we're at zero to '99. Um, then before this podcast, and then after this podcast. Um, so I'll go first just to get it out of the way. But um, in '99. <laughs> I didn't love this movie. I'd probably give it a 55 back then. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's, you know, I just didn't really love it. I didn't really get it. It just didn't really work for me. Um, so it is what it is. What Before this podcast, I was, I gave this film a 68 before this podcast. Now, whoa. After this podcast, I'm I'm back down to the fifties. I'm I'm back into the fifty six, fifty seven, fifty eight. I'm very surprised you're north of fifty. I, the reason I'm north of fifty, truthfully, is because of the production value and because I think it's a mess. But I think that there's interesting stuff here, and I don't know. I, I just I, I found it oddly compelling in its own weird way, um, and I just kind of respected some of the gonzo swings that it was going for so that's me yeah yeah well the first time i mean i did see it in 99 sure and i i reviewed it uh for when the dvd came out and i think my entire actually i've just pulled it up here but it's basically i was really into the atmosphere and the imagery yeah and i said the ending didn't work uh (laughs) tacked on coda feels like it was ported in from a bad horror movie to quote myself okay Uh, but for the most part the movie delivers on its premise so at the time you know, that would have worked out to like three out of five. So I would say 60, uh, okay. in 99, which is, which is a passing grade. Mm-hmm. And then revisiting it the other night, DVD all along, it's been on the shelf. Um, because I remember liking it more than I did. <laughs> I would probably go with like a 45. Okay. And now I'm, I'm kind of holding on to maybe drop it down a little bit more because clearly the stuff that I thought might've worked for other people didn't. Uh-huh. So I'm going to maybe give it a 40. Now there are things about it that I really want to be better. And there's other <laughs> stuff that just feels ill-advised. So it's not like a failure. Exactly. It's not, it's not unwatchable. Um, I guess I've seen it three times now overall. And, and I was amazed to find out that I remembered almost none of it. Uh, and uh, the stuff that I did remember is still pretty vivid, but it doesn't really, like they're pieces of a puzzle that are scattered all over the place. I think that I, I agree with you in a lot of ways. And I, I do think that I'm perhaps projecting a slightly better movie onto this movie, which is why I'm, I'm I think that really true. Which, well, which is the writer's why, impulse, right? You're not organizing something. <laughs> well, it's not Kenny's impulse. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I project a slightly worse movie onto everything. But I just, I think that, yeah, I, I, I don't want anyone to get, you know, a, a, another good writer out there is just one less job. I'm not going to get. <laughs> 
All right, what are yours, Kenny? Mine, never saw it in 99, never saw it before this. Uh, gave it a 20. Go get into this podcast. I didn't do it to be... I didn't do it to be provocative. I didn't do it to be <laughs> provocative, but I, I really just, you know, I, I generally write a little something. Okay. My little something was, I really don't have anything nice to say. <laughs> um, it's not a 20. <laughs> Looking back at the movies I gave 20s. 20s around that, it's better than House on Haunted Hill, for instance. It's yeah. better than yeah. Forces of Nature, for instance. Way better than Boondock Saints. I got, oh, yeah. I got. Have you guys a, done the love letter yet? The other DreamWorks, no, no. totally forgotten DreamWorks. But I look forward to the love letter. It's, uh, I think you know. it's better than that. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bump it up quite a bit, but from twenty. So I'm gonna bump it up to a, <laughs> right. I'm gonna bump it up to a thirty-eight. Um, I, I, I don't want it. I, I don't want to be remembered as the guy. Mm-hmm. We thought In Dreams was one of the five worst movies of 1999 because it is not. It's not. Oh, it is. It is not. It is. It is. You've done at least ten worse movies. We've done at least six. six, Yeah, we've done a lot worse movies than this. So it really isn't that bad. But um, I think. But I'll never watch it again on purpose. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with that. But don't. I think here's the difference between the films you just mentioned and the films that are below 20 between us is that those films didn't really strive to try to be something interesting sometimes or special. It, it, but it's sometimes like story of us, for instance, like really sure. A, it, like it, that's a failure. It offended yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. So, Simon no, says just, like that's autopilot, yeah. but also lazy and kind of contemptuous of the audience. Right. Yes, yes. This is, this isn't those that I agree with. This is, you know, I, who was the, the writer? Uh, was it Nathan Rabin who did the, um, or was it Matt Stoller's eyes mm-hmm. who did on a V club, the, the the, my year of flops. Yeah, that, flops. Yeah, that's uh, Raven. Yeah. That Nathan Raven. I, I I think this this might fall into the. Maybe. Uh, yep. With yeah, this might fall into like the 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 like fiasco category, it's which an is interesting yeah. fiasco. Fiascos are yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's the yeah, point. It's not a failure. It's not a failure. It's a fiasco. <laughs> like it's like it's it's like yeah yeah. I feel like Norm had it perfectly when this is the 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 waiter dropping the tray. <laughs> of everything and it's like why did you have a tea kettle on that tray why did you have a silver serving piece on that why did you have a bird cage on that tray yeah. not why sure furby there yeah well, what, not, what sure. is that furby there and how did you fit six million apples on that tray yeah so but yes that's that's kind of how it is it could be a ton worse it's not a 20 it's a solid what i have 38 38 uh, before before we go norm whenever we have a, a film critic on and it's Oscar season. I'm really, I'm, I am super interested to hear the movies you liked. Now this is going to air after the nominations, but I believe before the awards. Oh, cool. Yes. So if you feel so, uh, if you yeah, sure. I, mean, I like, just listened to the Cats episode, which uh, which ended with your Oscar predictions. Yes. Uh, so you know so where I'm, we stand. I'm ready. I'm good to go. Um, <laughs> I think obviously Cats will be nominated for everything. <laughs> Yeah, it will be nominated for awards that don't even exist. They're going to create new yeah, awards. I, that feels them. right. Honestly, I feel like oddly like vulnerable right now that you heard me do my my cats <laughs> opening. <laughs> oh, I thought that was great. Yeah. No, it's it's exactly yeah. what it deserves. Yeah. There's um there's a there's a I just filed a piece for now about an attempt to uh, well, it's, it will have happened by the time this drops. Uh, Anthony Oliveira, who's a, a cultural critic and, a, and an activist in Toronto, who has a screening series at the Review Cinema called Dumpster Raccoon, where he just celebrates trash. 
Uh, and he doesn't do it ironically. That's the thing. He, he genuinely wants to share the experience of watching these movies. So he's done Flash Gordon and Starship Troopers. Showgirls, I'm pretty sure, was one in there somewhere. Phantom of the Paradise. You, you, you see the pattern. Mm-hmm. And he's doing or has done two back-to-back screenings with drag performances and sing-along, open captions, everything of Cats. And he's throwing full-on jellical balls. Yeah, amazing. And that yeah. is... You know how I feel about that. that <laughs> I don't know that it... Like, I don't know that it will work. That's what's fascinating about it. It's such a strange, confounding film that it sort of crushes anybody who tries to watch it ironically. So this may be the only way to celebrate it. <laughs> but it's happening so quickly, right, that yeah. there hasn't been the time for it to go away and be reclaimed. That's. I was literally saying that to a friend of mine the other day about how, you know, there is too much preemptive it's going to be a, a cult classic. Yeah. It's like the movie was released three weeks That's ago. That's what I hate about it. Yeah. That you just nailed it so hard. Yeah. You don't get to decide something is a cult classic Three weeks week after. one. <laughs> right. I think it's the only way we can understand what it is, right? Like this makes no sense. This yeah. is an abomination. Yeah. The only thing – like you're instantly thinking, well, 10 years from now, this will be amazing. But it won't. No. It will still be this. Yes. It's a yeah. nightmare from hell. So, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, <laughs> so Norm, if you had to guess right now, what wins Best Picture? I am kind of worried that it'll go to The Irishman or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't think either of them should win. Do you have a preference? I honestly don't. I don't know that I do. I would love to see it go to Parasite or Little Women, which I also don't think has a chance of being nominated because for whatever reason, people just are actively resisting it now, which is just so shitty. Um, I don't know about that. I, I, I was, as you heard in our Oscar nominations, I'm, 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 I think that it's box office is, is plentiful. And I think that I think that I would have said it was DOA coming out of the screenings because no one went and the people that went just didn't seem to care. Right. Um, so, but I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little more bullish on it now. I think I think it could pull out, but who knows? My concern is that now the Academy members who are feeling like they're under siege because the world isn't what they remember it being will refuse to get like they're not going to be coerced they'll not that they will be but they'll the idea that now watching little women and maybe considering it for awards is somehow uh something that one must do is going to get a lot of people's backs up i think it's great i think it's um you know florence Pugh is just i don't know that she's right for the 13 year old part of of that character but she nails it as an adult and so the younger version of her being more awkward actually makes sense Yep. And I mean, I've loved her since Lady Macbeth. So I'm like all in on Florence Pugh getting as many awards as she can possibly get. She's tremendous. Um, had she a hell is. of a year. Yeah. And Marriage Story, maybe. I don't know. Um, it could. I don't. I honestly don't know if I, I don't know that there's a, a bias against Netflix anymore because I think they've been doing this long enough that now people are just like, yeah, that's a good movie that came from Netflix, but it's still a good movie. Uh, and Bombac's never really been in contention on this scale for awards, I don't think. So maybe that'll carry through. Um, I but keep, I'd love to see Parasite win something. I think something I think Parasite. I mean, I think it's I think it's going to do well. I don't know if it can win Best Picture, but I will say that I, the more after the Golden Globes, the more I think about it, the more I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could do very well, being a movie about Hollywood, being an oh, opportunity yeah, for failed, you know like, second to last Tarantino film that in theory we're going to get. Like it that feels is such like bullshit. Just yeah, keep I don't know, but. I'm wondering if the self-promotion might work against it now, though, finally, because, you know, yes, he's been making movies for almost 30 years now, and he's he's kind of curdled into empty self-promotion as a a person as instead of an artist. I don't know that he's really 
evolved as an artist and this always gets me yelled at but not since a, since Jackie Brown maybe or even Kill Bill I think the, his last string of movies have been really I have not liked them and I I bring this up um every now and then because I think it's something that no one will explore because it seems like lesser as an offense but one of the worst things that Harvey Weinstein did cinematically in addition to chopping up movies and and destroying people's careers out of spite was prevent Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith from ever growing like that's interesting they wanted he Kevin Smith had no room to grow but you know has been <laughs> Kevin's well I think uh look I I I what can I say I disagree with you but <laughs> respect that but i just like the movies he's made since um really since death proof i think from death proof on have just not landed for me you, um, you didn't like glorious way. bastards not real. i liked it i didn't love it i yeah. and i that was the first time well no death proof was the first time where i watched one of his movies like you know you could lose this you could lose this this is unnecessary and glorious bastards really felt like a bag of affectations and i gotta say i i was offended by the ending in the same way i was offended by the ending of uh, once upon a time in hollywood it's like don't do that. You, you can. You are not such a brilliant artist that you can rewrite history for a cheap effect. Can I? I'm, I, I, I want to jump in here really quickly just about this because I, I I fully agree with you, and that's how I interpreted a lot of this. And then the other day, I saw a clip of Greta Gerwig introducing him at uh, at a WGA event of some sort. Uh, and you know he was winning some sort of award, and she says something that I that I really kind of clung to, and I kind of love, which is she said that he loves movies so much he thinks that they can save lives and that they can change history. And right. there's but they can't. <laughs> I, I understand. I, I understand that, but I do think that there's something kind of lovely about that idea and about this notion of him feeling like the power of cinema, and and what what it's capable of. I think is really interesting and special. Now, again, I'm not disagreeing with you. I have my issues with with, with some of the movies he's made over the last couple of years. Um, but I've also found myself growing in my esteem as they get older, as I get older, as they age. They just mm-hmm. become more interesting to me. So I, I don't mean – and listen, I agree with you. When he won the Golden Globe the other night, I was like, are you fucking kidding me with his <laughs> like, I don't need to thank anybody because I did everything. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that, that's yeah. what I mean. Like there are people who defend him for the artistry that they desperately need to see in these films. So they're not egomaniacal total wastes of time. Sure. But I'm just like after Django, it's just like, you know what? No, you don't know what the – I don't think he fully understands the iconography that he's working with. I mean, I interviewed him about it at the time with Django and it's just like – he doesn't – I don't think he knows his movie didn't end slavery. Fair, yeah. Fair point. Like what he says goes for him and that's that's a real problem with some of the choices he's made. And and also with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, – spoilers, guys. But if Sharon Tate doesn't die, then the, the scenes we've seen of her make no sense. If the movie is about our investment in this poor doomed person and this nice human being whose life was snuffed out by monsters – those characters never get to be monsters and she doesn't get snuffed out. So what we watch is only like, it only works if you're sitting in your room jerking off to the destruction of the man. <laughs> That's what I was doing now. That's weird. That's why I like this. So much. <laughs> um, I don't want to get too much into it. I, I guess I just kind of fundamentally disagree. The, 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 the juxtaposition of real life and Quentin Tarantino's version of real life is really kind of thrilling to me. And it may not work contextually, but I don't think that's how you view 
Quentin Tarantino, at least those two particular movies. Django, I'm not particularly enamored with Django the way I am with Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But Inglorious Bastards in particular, um, to me was like, honestly, the end, the end, the end felt like releasing doves I didn't know existed. Um, the, 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 the thrill of, of sitting there the whole movie thinking this is a stupid, exercise because all you know because hitler doesn't die in this end and then having him die was a thrill it was it was so beautifully cathartic i can't get over it and uh and that really worked for me um well the end of once upon a time in hollywood really worked for me too but that actually i think the the context of uh quentin having previously done this with inglorious bastards heard it a lot but you know, I know who those people are. I know what monsters those people are, and they can <laughs> they can get burned. Yeah. To, they can get burned to death by flamethrowers for all I care. But that's like, but that's what I mean. They, <laughs> in this movie, they didn't do any of that. They don't even kill Cliff when he goes out, and we know again. We know that a stuntman dies on this died at some point on the Spawn Ranch and was murdered by the Manson family. Mm-hmm. So that whole scene is supposed to set up this tension, and it turns out I watched it again, and it's just like you know what everything. All those weird lies they seem to be telling Cliff, Bruce Dern backs him right up. He says everything that they said. Mm-hmm. So is the point of this that the Manson family was harmless? Uh, no. Uh, I don't uh, think that's uh, what and it that is. They never... That's the text of the movie. Like that, If you right. actually watch what Tarantino lays out, he's created a world where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt can kill some people and brutally murder women. Whose only offense to the film, her only transgression is that they're kind of skanky and weird. But you can't look – I just don't think you can look at it just simply by the context or by the – you know, the But that's what I mean. Like if credits you think to about credits. it in terms of the actual historical evidence, the movie doesn't work either because he's changed history. He can't – he wants it both ways, but he doesn't understand that he just – there is a disconnect that he's creating. I think that I, I – listen, I'm, I'm going to just – for what it's worth for me anyway, I've, I saw it twice in the theater. The first time I saw it, I was not particularly enamored with it. I thought it was kind of boring. I didn't really know what I was supposed to be watching or enjoying. I read a bunch of articles. I kind of thought – the movie stayed with me. I thought about it a lot. I saw it a second time in the theater and was really taken with it. Um, it's a fairy tale. I think literally it's a fairy tale. That's, I that's that, also what I, I love mean, about the, it. The too. end of it is it literally says Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I think it is – I think it's just – Apropos of your jerking off thing, which is completely fair, it is Tarantino jerking himself off to a fairy tale version of what the '60s could have been. Sure, uh, and and that's and whether you like that or not, I also jerk off to thinking about the '60s. <laughs> let's let's put that over here in okay, one we'll disgusting bucket. Yeah. But the whole uh, section of the podcast. But, but the 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 uh, the other thing I absolutely love about Tarantino is the way he owns his disgustingness. Yes. Um, so many feet. The so many feet thing <laughs> is there was a tweet and the, it was it was my maybe my my version of your Greta Gerwig introduction. Mm-hmm. It was we we should be so lucky to have a director who is willing to put his deepest darkest fetishes on screen like that. We are so lucky. <laughs> That someone is willing to throw their most true, deepest, disgusting parts out there in a way that should make us all feel a little better about our own picadillos. On that note, all I can think of is this is what he's comfortable showing us. That's yeah, fair enough. That's an interesting, scary thought. 
Um, <laughs> no, so, so d- the last question about the Oscars and Oscar season, do you have, uh, is there anything you think is going to surprise or anything that, that you would love to see kind of sneak in there? Yeah. After the Golden Globes, I guess it wouldn't be as much of a surprise, but I would love to see Aquafina and the Farewell yeah. get more than just a couple of nominations here or there. I want it up for best picture. I want it up for screenplay. I want it up for actress and supporting actress and director. I, I just, it was my, uh, my, like that uh, was my number two movie of the year, I guess. Oh, wow. After okay. Parasite. And I just want to see it. It just hit me so purely in the feels, right? Like it's about someone who's – my parents divorced when I was 10. And so I, that was, I guess, how I connected to the idea of this this person whose life was ripped away from her. What she knew was changed when she was a child. And the the idea that someone finally made a movie about the powerlessness of a, of a, of a child who, who finally gets to understand as an adult that – like she's not responsible for the mm-hmm. way the world changed around her. Bombeck does it in the squid and the whale kind of, but we're seeing it at the time through the perspective of the kids. This one watching, uh, watching Aquafina do that in, in the movie and also anchor the comic stuff and the dramatic stuff. Cause it's really not that much of a, of a point, this, this feeling, but this dislocation and the sense of, of obligation to family and this generational stuff and the things about being, you know, she's perceived as too American to go back to the family because she's, she won't be able to contain herself. All of that stuff is just so beautifully threaded and layered into the story of a family saying goodbye to someone. I just think it's one of the best movies I've seen in a very, very long time. And Parasite too. I I want that to do really well. I want Park, uh, Oh, I'm going to forget her name. Uh, I want Jessica to win. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. She won't, but Park, won't. Uh, Park Jam? Yeah. I think. I, I, I will be – I am I think that this year has proven itself at the end to actually have a handful of really good movies. And I think that my hope it's is that – great year. Yeah. It turned into a really great year. Yeah, and I, my hope is A lot that, of potentially really interesting nominees. I agree. I'm, I'm hoping oh, if Joanna Hogg gets anything for the souvenir, then my purpose will have been fulfilled on her. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very curious to see what they do. Uh, I hope that they take some risks. I hope that they don't play it too safe. Um, I just don't know. The thing about this year though, is which is really cool. Mm-hmm. There's no way to play it safe. If you're going to pull eight movies out of this top 15 mm-hmm. group, there are going to be six or seven really interesting movies there. There are only so many Ford versus Ferraris you can put there to play it safe. So yeah, it's. It, I mean, I I don't know what you thought of 1917 Norm, versus but- Ferrari. That's going to win, isn't it? That's going to be <laughs> that's Green Book. Yes, uh, really, really solid, solid technical accomplishment. And um, I just you, know, you didn't emotionally like luck into it. No, and it's George McKay. Yeah. Um, he has one expression and I don't like it. I think it's really like wow. he looks like a gap fish for the entire movie and it was a problem. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, I can see that. It's just the way his eyes – I mean he's playing terror, right? But yeah. he just – his eyes bug out in a certain way and his mouth stays open. It's just this little tick that I – that once you notice it, you can't unsee it. Interesting. And just felt like – I mean I, know, I guess I noticed it to a certain degree. In Whitehead from Dunkirk does something completely different in a similar role in Dunkirk and I just kept thinking, oh, Sam Mendes made this movie – because he saw a bunch of other war yeah. movies and thought, oh, I, I can do that. And he just kind of plugged George McKay in. I mean, okay. I, 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 it, I think it's, you know, I think it's that's, not bad. It's, it's very watchable and it's, it's I, really I thought it was, I, I think that I'm, I'm just, I was bummed by the, the, the film Twitter rhetoric coming out of it winning best picture and best director at the Golden Globes, which is, which seems like some sort of a curse because now it gets the shit kicked out of it online. 
when I when I think that it's actually uh, it's a better movie than people are giving it credit for, and my fear is that that's going to be seen as like the safe bet, quote unquote. I think bet. people are being a lot nicer to it than you do. Okay, I think you might be looking for it. I think that you know, and I, I I mean I don't know if Norm's um, kind of feeling about Irishman and and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that widespread, but there's a lot of I don't think that there's a Parasite might be it, but I think everyone's a little kind of hesitant mm-hmm. to to really put all their emotional weight behind it because, you know, a foreign film is never mm-hmm. one best foreign language film is never one best right. picture. But if it's time, right? Like if this, if or not, even if it's time, cause I don't buy that argument, it's always time for something. Sure. But if, um, if it is going, if a foreign language film is going to win one parasite is like the best, the best movie of the year. It's one of the best movies of the decade. Why the hell wouldn't they get behind it if they can see it? I think that would be great. And also, the other thing that has come that I was thinking about is the there have been years, just in the last few years, where the safe choice has been followed by a really like wide swing. And so we're coming off of you know, like you know, Spotlight then Moonlight. Yeah. Not that Spotlight is a safe movie, but it's a very, very conventional film that's very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spotlight was followed by Moonlight and Shape of Water, and then there's Green Book, which hopefully means this year they're going to take another risk, and maybe it'll be, um, maybe it'll be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is still like technically speaking, it's an art film despite the fact that it's made by a major studio with a lot of A-listers. Uh, the Irishman feels like a safe choice now because it's Scorsese; he's won before. It's gangsters; it's material that people know and are comfortable with. Ford v Ferrari, absolutely, it's the right stuff with cars. Uh, I did not like it so much, but I can totally see the Academy that voted for Green Book getting behind it. I could but see maybe. a world I, I can see a world where where Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood split the vote and somehow Parasite slips in there. I think how, how many real potential winners are there? I really think there are there are four. I think it's Irishman, Once Upon a Time, Parasite, and nineteen seventeen. You think 1917 has that kind of shot? I think they're – just in terms of potential winners. I mean I think the the kind of a cool thing has happened the last two, three years where instead of going into the Oscars with like maybe like a one and then a you know a clear one and then a kind of distant two, mm-hmm. which was the La La Land um, Moonlight sure. dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you have had four or five or even six contenders. I mean I remember last year, Phil, you and I did this conversation mm-hmm. – did this this is podcast? I we were talking about the post as a potential winner before oh, the nominations sure, sure. came out. For sure, I think for that sure, would yeah. be like yeah. seven deep. So this year, I think there are four. Uh, I don't really see anything above those outside of those four winning. But you're seeing once upon a time, once upon a time, Irishman, Parasite, 1917. I think that's it. Is there those, anything those, else? I mean, I think Marriage Story maybe Marriage Story. That's I guess outsider, would be the fifth. but I would and Jojo that- Rabbit. Could yeah. potentially, if Jojo Rabbit uh, gets a lot of nominations, mm-hmm. I could see it kind of, you know, it kind of has a shape of water feel to me. If if Taika yeah. doesn't get, if if the DGA is the same as the directing nomination, if it's if it's literally the people that the DGA nominated, then I would I would agree that Jojo has a shot. I think that if Taika doesn't get that fifth slot, oh, it does go to good. Greta. Then I wonder whether or not like. You could see a stealth Little Women campaign in some way, perhaps happening. Three but. days before the nomination, in order, I would say I think um, I think Irishman would win if I had to put my money my money right really? now. Really? Yes, I would. In order, I'd put Irishman once upon a time in Hollywood. I'd say nineteen seventeen, Parasite, Marriage Story, and uh, Jojo Rabbit. I think those are the six that have a non-zero chance. Okay, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. That sounds like they're good contenders. I mean, I I think if mm. if 
Greta Gerwig has a shot at winning anything, it'll probably be adapted screenplay because I agree. That, that's always catnip. Yeah. You know, like actors writing scripts for well-regarded movies. Emma Thompson won. And she really uh, did it uh, too. Brooklyn. It's like, it's a, she it's nailed it. cool. It's just cool yeah, that she didn't great. just go. Yeah. She didn't just go, you know, page one to the end. Mm-hmm. Like she really adapted it for modern mm-hmm. times. That's one of the five movies I've actually seen this year. So I could talk about it's it. It's an amazing movie. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming on Norm. We, we truly, truly appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Like, again, I'm, I'm just happy to be a part of the show. I really enjoy it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. And, and we're going to have you back. We'll, we'll, I'll send you the list and we'll find something else for you to come sure. on for. Yeah, you could be our Neil yeah. Jordan correspondent if you want to do any of the affair. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. It's true. I, you know, I think I, I don't know how many people have actually seen that movie. I'd be happy to. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and if the Galaxy Quest thing falls through, you know, just <laughs> we will keep you in mind. Uh, next week, we are, we're going to do The Bachelor next week. Ooh. Uh, Ooh. The uh, the Chris O'Donnell Renee Zellweger perhaps this this year's winner for best oh, actress yeah, perhaps um, have you seen The Bachelor Norm uh, not since but yeah I saw it in '99 <laughs> okay I uh, not remember it at all we're gonna like, have I, I remember the poster more than I remember the movie you have a guy running away from like a million brides no I think it's oh I'm thinking the DVD case or the VHS case it's like it's just Chris O'Donnell sort of leaning forward. Like leaning uh, on his elbows with Renee Zellweger on the other side, and maybe or maybe nobody, and he's holding an empty wedding ring. But I don't know. There that, are like seven could, I don't know. I don't know anything about the this Bachelor movie. is uh, a movie I have not seen. We're going to have Toby Herman come on and talk about it, and then on top of that, baked into that episode, we're also going to talk about uh, 1999 celebrity weddings and divorces. So uh, we're going to fold that in there and uh, and have some fun with that as well. But um, again, Norm, thank That's you so much for for coming on and. Uh, we look forward to having you on again. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Love to. Listen to and Norm's podcast. Yeah, I was just going to say, talk about your podcast for a second, Norm. Plug your podcast. Uh, well, sure. Yes. Uh, well, Phil, you've, you've done an episode of I have. called Someone Else's Movie. And it's a podcast in which an actor, writer, director, nebulous industry figure talks about a movie they love but that they didn't make. Not an unmade movie, but it's someone else's movie, literally. So uh, what am I thinking? Of? Like Sarah Gadden took Cleo from five to seven. Uh, that's a great episode to start on because it's like the platonic ideal of the show. Um, <laughs> Phil, you did Wonder Boys. I did do Wonder uh, Boys. It's another film that has sort of fallen away in people's memory, and hopefully that would have helped boost it up. Uh, Tatiana Maslany and Tom Cullen did There Will Be Blood, and it was one of those where I was worried that it would be too stiff, and within 10 minutes we're all doing Daniel Plainview voices at each other. <laughs> it was, it's When it works, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Sun Young Lee, on, uh, uh, who's on Kim's Convenience, uh, people can find that on Netflix. It's a wonderful, wonderful Canadian sitcom that I think exemplifies the country better than almost any other piece of art this decade. Wow. He came on to do Jaws, oh, wow. uh, which is both of our favorite movie. And he did that the, like the month before Kim's aired. We didn't know each other. It was the first time we'd ever met. And you can actually hear us become friends. It's a, just, it's a wonderful, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a wonderful bonding thing when it happens. Because uh, people talking about something they love are their best selves. I find. I agree. And, and it, it happens on our yeah, podcast all just, the time. Yeah. You just it's get true. to hear the real person. It evolved out of a, an interview where I ended up talking to somebody for five minutes about under the skin, which she'd just seen. And she, it was not the thing she was promoting. And we just ended up distracted. And when I was listening to the transcript after or listening back to the tape, it's like, shit, that's the best of her and the best of me. And none of it is relevant. So then a few months later, I realized that could be the thing. That could be the thing you develop. And it it sort of exists in opposition to all the other bad movie podcasts that were happening at the time. 
Um, sure. And sure. I just figured, you know, like, let's not shit on something for an hour. Let's come up with a reason to talk about something that should be celebrated. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That being said. No, no one has brought cats on. <laughs> that being said, you were just your best self shitting on in dreams, in my opinion. <laughs> and I think we became friends over the course of this podcast. So there you go. So I was trying my best to do the shitting no we didn't do shitting we we, we were very we were very respectful we of a movie that deserves to be shit all over oh please <laughs> uh, well thank you again norm uh huge huge thank you uh and we'll, we'll have you back on and you'll have kenny on your podcast for defending my life and uh defending yeah, your life whatever list now it's all hits defending yeah. your life no one's brought an albert brooks movie on 260 episodes That's interesting. You know? I, yeah I, I love that man and i think Defending your, I, I love Albert Brooks movies, kind of almost across the board, but I think Defending Your Life is um, a masterpiece, just a masterpiece, just a head and shoulders. It's very good masterpiece. It's almost impossible for me to believe it exists. Yeah. I can't wait the to hear the episode. Of the Rip Tornissance too, right? Like, wasn't that? Where I think so. Torn yeah, became Rip Torn. Yeah, I think so. For for a new generation. Yeah, <laughs> first time I saw. Him. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear that episode. I will listen to to uh, defending your life with uh, with Kenny. Oh, and, I can't uh, wait to talk later. about it. So right. happy oh, I just let's book it. so happy right. I just booked myself on your pod. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you so much, Norm. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Uh, so next week um, we're doing the Bachelor, uh, not the television show that. Lots of people seem to really love. Um, but the movie, obviously, from 1999 uh, with Chris O'Donnell and Renee Zellweger, uh, it, it's 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 a really not good movie. I, I would not recommend watching it. Um, but, um, you know, came in in 99, so here we are. Uh, it's it's just it's – a, it's, a, it's not a very good uh, romantic comedy. But um, it made a fair amount of money, sort of, kind of. I think it made its money back at the very least. Um, even if it is deeply, um, dated and misogynistic and, um, is sort of, I guess, apparently loosely based on a Buster Keaton movie. I, I don't know. But, uh, Toby Herman came on for it. Our, one of our favorite guests. She's great. Um, and she came here with, uh, pages and pages of notes. Uh, she was incredibly well, well prepared. Um, and it's a really great episode. It's a really fun episode. Uh, even if the movie itself is, uh, is a turd. But, um... Next week, Bachelor with uh, Toby Horn. Thanks. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it. You want the podcast like it. 1999. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 